Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody so come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer so? today, didn't you? you tried How do the dead come back, Mother? Didn't you? You What's the secret? Branch line to Benchiston. Although to know Adrian Friend was not necessarily to like him, he interested me from the very first. If his life contained much of the ordinary, the manner of his death was very far out of it. The biographical portion of these notes is therefore by way of a preface to the mystery of his end. I had lived at Brensham for two years before the Garden City Company showed any intention of extending Ruskin Road. So long as it remained a cul-de-sac, the peace of my bachelor homestead would remain undisturbed, for beyond it lay only a wilderness of weed and bramble between the road's end and the Bren River. I watched then, with misgiving, a gradual clearing by the company's roadmen of this barren strip, and the construction by them of a gravel track down its centre. But I need not have worried, for a bridging of the Bren on a purely residential thoroughfare was quite beyond the company's financial resources, and the sole purpose of the extension was to afford access to a vacant building lot on the side opposite me and nearer to the river. On this quickly arose Brenside, and into it, as first tenant, moved Adrian Friend. My first glimpse of him was during a reconnaissance made by me along the river bank for that very purpose. What would be the looks of a man whom I might have to live next to for long years naturally aroused my curiosity? Nor was my first impression unfavourable. I saw a man of nearly six feet, clean-shaven, oval-faced, dark-haired, well-knit and smartly tailored. Without hesitation, I made up my mind to call as soon as he was comfortably settled in. I did so some ten days later and found him very pleased to be doing host in his new house. Bren's side had been wisely planned to provide one really large room on the window side of which stood an Erard grand piano on glass casters. In front lay a large Persian rug on whose beautiful and expensive expanse none of the surrounding leather chairs were allowed to impinge. The pictures on the walls were all of religious subjects, and though not pertaining to the same religion. They included a coloured print of the Sistine Madonna, a silver-point drawing of the Hermes of Praxiteles, a rather wishy-washy sketch in watercolour of the Buddha, and an enlarged photograph of Hindu frescoes in the Ajanta Caves. There were two large bookcases, one containing books whose titles I could not see from the chair into which Brent beckoned me, and the other largely filled by bound volumes of the railway magazine. Immediately above them was a scale model of a locomotive, protected by an oblong glass frame. This miniature engine and the magazines offended my aesthetic sensibility by their incongruity with the other furnishings, and made me curious to ascertain the nature of the books in the other case. Finding excuse in a draught from the window, I soon transferred myself to a nearer seat, whence my eye fell on a representative and well-bound collection of English classics, both in prose and poetry. The only exceptions were gathered on a shelf to themselves, and might be categorised under the title borne by the largest of them, which was Herbs, Simples, Drugs and Poisons. Friend caught my inquisitive glance. One of my many hobbies, he explained. I grow them, you know. That's why I've chosen the place by the river. 
I lost a lot of valuable stuff last year at Tenford during the August drought. I'm going to make the garden here a herbalist's paradise. You must drop in occasionally and see how it's getting on. I've got my eye on the small greenhouse as a future laboratory. I not only grow the plants, but I make them into medicines. I always make my own insecticides and the vermifuges for my dogs. They're in the kennel now, under treatment. Come along and see them. Leading me out by a side door, he introduced me to two liver-coloured taxons in one of the outhouses. They were almost offensively affectionate after the nature of their breed. I adore dogs, he said. I was glad that he did not see me wince, but I hate men to use the word adore. It is woman's property. Businessmen, on their daily track from Brensham to the city, have a choice of three trains. The 847 runs you through to Cripplegate and is uncomfortably crowded. The 859 has a slightly superior clientele, but lands you at St. Eustace's Cross, midway between east and west, whence it is necessary to proceed by underground. The 915, similarly bound, is patronised only by such as are in positions to determine for themselves their times of arrival and departure. It was in this third train that I met Friend next morning and thereby placed him in the category of employer rather than of employee, nor was my inference at fault, as I learned from his conversation on the way up. He was a partner in the firm of Frent, Frent and Saxon Limited, music publishers of two to three Great Penchester Street. His father, who had died last year, had left him in joint managership with Paul Saxon, whom indeed I remembered somewhat indistinctly as a fellow member of the junior chemesis before its absorption by the older university clubs. It did not take me long, listening to Friend's call, to realise that here was a case of a business house being very much divided against itself. To put the whole matter into a nutshell, Adrian was musically a severe classicist, while Saxon was crazy on jazz. Each had, I gathered, in his own line brought grist to the common mill. Friend had at the unlimited expense of an aunt of the composer, who contributed also a frontispiece, published in album form Julian Grinley's Twelve Dream Pieces for Pianoforte. Saxon undoubtedly struck a good bargain when he acquired publishing rights over a jazz series which included such astonishing hits as Giaconda and Bendigo. The pity of it was that each, while sharing in it, grudged the other his success. Daily travelling in the same compartment, Friend and I soon found ourselves on terms of acquaintance that bordered on intimacy. This was because I was glad to find him interesting, and he glad to find someone whom he interested. I derived entertainment even from his knowledge of locomotives and running schedules, and acquiring the jargon of the initiate was soon speaking of the permanent way as the road, and of signals being on or off instead of up or down. His tales of railway history especially appealed to me, and, after he had pointed out the gasworks siding which leaves the main line just north of Ponsden Priory as being all that now remains of an aborted London, Middlehampton and East Coast Railway, I often found my eyes straying from my evening paper as we jerked over the junction points towards the heavy gates that closed the siding against the main line of which it had been intended to form a most important branch. In moments of despondency, the tale of this siding would appear to me as an allegory of what had happened to so many pet projects of my own scheming. 2. I forget the exact date of Friend's coming to Brenside, but it was at the beginning of March. 
On the 17th April, poor old Miss Lurgasol of Rose Dean, Heseltine Road, was trapped in her bedroom and burned to death when the house took fire from defects in the electrical insulation. Rose Dean and Brenside had been designed by the same architect, and in both plans the front and back stairs occupied respectively the fore and rear of the middle section of the building. This arrangement, comparing it to a central flue the coroner described as a death trap. A criticism so characteristic of a coroner's obiter dicta naturally passed unheeded by hundreds of people whose houses were on a similar plan. But not by Adrian Friend. What are you going to do about your stairs? he asked me. Nothing, I replied, and you? I'm having a fire escape put in from the box room next to my bedroom. That'll cost you something. Oh, not much. All one needs is a trap door and a length of rope. We used to have several of them at my prep school. In case of emergency, one lifts the trap, throws down the rope, and swarms down it hand over hand. Cheap and easy. I'm a bit of a carpenter, as you know, and I cut the trap door yesterday. Now all that remains to do is to get a rope. You'll need a staple to fix it to, I pointed out, and that means a hole through the wall and a plate. Oh, I know of an odd job man who'll fix that up for me in no time and at very small charge. I strongly advise you to follow my example. I have recorded the above conversation for the reason, as well as for another which will appear later, that it well illustrates a basic defect in Friend's character. He was always starting things without consideration of their full implications and dropping them when he ran up against difficulties. In the present instance, the example which he bade me follow was never set, for neither staple nor rope eventuated. He just forgot about them. It was the same story with his piano playing. He had excellent taste and touch, but I have seldom known him to play a piece right through. As soon as he came to a tricky passage, he would break off with a, Sorry, I'm out of practice. I suspected, however, that he had never been in practice, for he hated drudgery, and all his activities lacked perseverance and system. Take, for instance, the death of his Daxons, the cause of which he never revealed to me. The vet, however, did. They had been poisoned by draughts out of a wrong bottle. How a man who prided himself in concocting his own insecticides and vermifuges could have been so careless passed my comprehension. Nor did the loss of these pets cause him any observable sorrow. I sometimes wondered, in fact, whether he did not derive a greater pleasure from the artistic little headstones that he had placed over their graves than any that the dogs have ever afforded him while alive. As these sentences flow from my pen, I am conscious that they become increasingly critical of Adrian Friend. This is not from any desire on my part to play the role of dissecting moralist, but because my portrait of the man cannot be rendered faithful or lifelike without painting in the shadows. He certainly suffered no qualms himself about personal criticisms, for his daily conversations with me became more and more charged with venom against the klaxon, as he now insisted on calling his partner. His outbursts would have indeed been wearisome, but for the many amusing turns of phrase and fancy with which he embellished them. Nevertheless, my conscience would sometimes accuse me of abetting slander, and by way of appeasing it, I argued to myself that by allowing friend to blow off steam, I was preventing the accrual of his animosity of any explosive quality that might be generated by enforced repression. As the summer wore on, we dropped in frequently at each other's houses, and I was privileged to see the burgeoning of a herbalist's paradise, 
these were his words, not mine, for a meaner collection of disreputable weeds could be hardly imagined. The only lasting memory of my inspection of it is of his telling me that what I still continue to call deadly nightshade is neither nightshade nor deadly. The so-called laboratory in a little greenhouse was equally impressive. Indeed, it reminded me of nothing so much as the pitiful messes that children will make out of leaves and berries to serve as pretense food in their toy dinner services. I could not but remember the sad end of those two dachshunds and found myself viewing the disarray of bottles, tins and saucers with mounting distaste. Friend, perhaps discerned these thoughts. Come along indoors, he said, and I'll play you the march funèbre out of that Beethoven sonata. The movement contains no really difficult passages, and he did it justice. It little occurred to me that it was the last thing I should hear him play. 3. September the 14th is my birthday, and I am able to set that date with certainty against the events that follow. I had lunched at his club with my brother Gerald, and taking the afternoon off, made to catch the 3.30 at St. Houston's Cross. I had hardly settled down in a corner seat before, to my surprise, in got friend. I had never known him take so early a train before, and the fuss that he was in made me ask the reason. I'm through for good with Saxon, he explained, and we shall have to dissolve the partnership. I just hate him and all his works, and he knows it and trades on it. All our publications are now on his side of the show. I simply have to agree to everything he demands in order to get him out of my room. He knows how I loathe whistling and humming, but he hums or whistles his filthy jazz the whole working day. Blast him. He rubs it in too about my daily bread being buttered with croon and swing. That Lulu on the Lilo tune is the rottenest stuff the house has ever published, and yet it's netted us some three hundred quid already. Tainted money, I call it. At this point, Friend thumped his despatch case into the luggage rack and stood above me while he continued, And now, this morning, he comes and leans over my desk, breathing his beastly flu into my very nostrils. He knows well enough how prone I am to colds and how careful I have to be to avoid infection. And then to cap it all, he asks me to lend him my quack sniffle cure, as he thinks it funny to call it. Well, he asked for it, and he's got it. I hope it chokes him. As your worm mixture did the Daxons, I laughingly interposed. Friend slowly sat down and scowled at me. It was the first time that I had made him angry. Can't you let me forget those damned dogs, he snapped, and then added self-pityingly. What I need is a rest and a change of scene. Saxons put all my nerves on edge. As the train glided out of the gloom of the roofed terminus into unimpeded daylight, I was shocked to see Friend's face. It was lined, drawn and grey, an ugly yellow-grey. The man was patently unwell. I'm sorry, old man, I said sympathetically. If I were you, I should take a long weekend and run down to the seaside. That's a good idea, he muttered, and for the next quarter of an hour he made a show of reading the evening paper, though his attention appeared far from concentrated on it. The rolling stock used on the 3.30 consists chiefly of old six-wheelers, and progress became bumpy as we gained speed. After rattling through Ponson Priory Station, the carriage gave a bigger jolt than usual over the siding junction, and something fell tinkling onto the floor. Friends Ponsonais, always precariously perched, had been jerked off his nose, and I waited for him to pick them up. He remained, however, 
stock still, with fingers outspread on his knees, staring down at the paper, which had fallen over his feet. He looked so dazed and helpless, that stooping forward myself, I picked up the pince-nez and handed them up to him. After regarding them curiously for a few moments, he lifted his eyes questioningly to mine and said, Thank you, sir, but are you sure they're mine? They're on your nose a moment ago. Ah, were they? I had forgotten. You must excuse me, but everything seems suddenly to have gone out of my head. It's quite extraordinary. For instance, your face seems familiar to me, and I feel sure that we must have met each other before, but at the moment I've entirely forgotten your name. I'm so sorry. Not only Friend's face, but the impersonal note in his voice, as though he were repeating a lesson, startled and distressed me. I felt relieved somehow that there was no third person in the compartment to overhear his conversation. He was undoubtedly seized by some sudden illness and consequent abnormality, and it must devolve on me to get him home to Brenside safely and without incident. It's strange how in emergency one sometimes finds the policeman element in one's character taking charge and directing operations. It was so now, for I heard myself addressing friend in a calm and custodial manner that surprised me. My name is Johnson, and yours is friend, I said. We live next to each other in Ruskin Road, Brensham, which is the next stop. You've been working too hard and worrying too much, and as a result your brain has gone temporarily on strike. But don't you bother about that. Go on reading your paper. I picked it up for him. And when we reach Brensham, I'll see you home and call in the doctor. He'll soon put you right again. Friend received my remarks with a passive and childlike acceptance, and save that I experienced an uncomfortable sensation of walking with a sonambulist, we reached Brensine without trouble. Having explained to the parlourmaid that her master had been taken ill, I got him to lie down on a sofa and rang up Dr. Jameson. The latter was round within five minutes, and having looked at Friend and taken his pulse, he peremptorily and monosyllabically enjoined bed. A telephone inquiry of the Brensham District Nursing Guild elicited that Nurse Margison was immediately available, and in less than half an hour she had Friend and Brenside in her charge. Let's drop in at your place, and I'll prescribe for you too, said Jameson as he walked away. You must have had an anxious time getting that fellow home. He joined me in taking his own prescription. It was a stiff one. Four. Friend lay in bed five days before recovery. He was described by Miss Margison as an ideal patient, which meant he slept most of the time, asked no questions, and did whatever she told him. It was the second or third day that I read in my morning paper of Paul Saxon's death from influenza. The attack, a severe one, had been aggravated by acute gastric complications and had terminated fatally in pneumonia. Friend's fulminations against his partner had led me to envisage a Philistine of the Philistines. I was surprised, therefore, to read in the obituary notice of a distinguished academic career and of his identity with publics in the bi-monthly review, whose articles on art and literature I had always enjoyed and admired. I was permitted to visit Friend at the very outset of his recovery. His first request was indeed that he might see me. Considering that he might be said to have lost his self for several days, I found him almost incongruously self-possessed. Before him lay a letter from Lister, his company's manager, reporting the circumstances of Saxon's death. How extremely annoying of him, Friend complained. 
to die just when the doctor orders me a holiday. I simply must clear up the mess he will have left, and it will take several weeks. All the same, I shall have to run down to Benchiston for a few days before long. Benchiston, I queried. Fred's face suddenly showed again. It might have been due to a reflection of sunset glow on the ceiling, the same deep lines and yellow-grey colour that had worried me in the train. I don't know what made me say, Benchiston, he continued. Any seaside resort would do, but I feel that I must get a whiff of the sea. By the way, Saxon's funeral was this afternoon. I hope they didn't jazz the dead march. The last words were those of a cad, but in consideration for friend's state I let them pass, and the conversation slipped into generalities. For some reason, however, he gave me the impression of trying to drag our talk round to some subject from which, as soon as he had manoeuvred it into proximity, he veered away in distaste. It was an unpleasant sensation, and after half an hour or so, I made as though to take my departure by asking whether I might send him anything over to read. Have you, by any chance, got a book called The Badlands, he replied. I'm afraid not, but I remember reading a short story under that name by uh, John Metcalf, I think. Friend seemed quite excited. Was it about a fellow being in two places at the same time and doing something criminal in one of them while he thought he was doing something good in another? I don't think, I protest, that the author would appreciate such a crude summary. The tale was extraordinarily well and carefully written, and in the light of modern conceptions of space and time, very likely a true one. What on earth do you mean, friend? I mean that space can get kinks and double back over and under itself. Of course you know all that. I most certainly do not, and I'm perfectly certain that you don't either. You must have been reading some such tosh as Einstein without tears, or, or brain food for the brainless. You'd far better stick to your old railway magazines. I know far more, Johnson, than you guess, than I wish. Some day, perhaps, I'll try to explain, but not now. Au revoir, and many thanks for coming round. I had recently purchased in five large volumes a series of maps of the counties of Great Britain with combined index. On reaching my house, I went straight to the study and taking down the index from its shelf, looked up Benchiston. My suspicions were not relieved. There was no such place. 5. I never met Friend again in the train after his recovery. This was because he changed his route and travelled from Wentlow for East Brensham to King's Pancras. This involved him in a mile and a half walk, morning and evening, which, as being conducive to his good health, he gave as the reason for the change. His looks, however, belied the explanation. His condition, indeed, caused Dr. Jameson and myself increasing anxiety, and my uneasiness was aggravated by his point-blank refusal to consult Jameson professionally or to call in any other doctor. It was reassuring, therefore, when he informed us that a cousin, Gilbert French Sutton, was coming to live with him. This cousin, he told us, was a fellow of all saints and a recognised authority on the Middle Ages. He did not tell us, but we soon found out, that his cousin was also to be identified with Friend Sutton, the old Camford rugger blue. From the moment he arrived, we recognised in him a man who would stand no nonsense, and we therefore felt happier about Friend, who was already in visible danger of going all to pieces unless he had somebody to help to keep him together. A week or so after Friend Sutton's arrival, the doctor and I were invited by telephone to drop in together at Brenside and have a drink. At the gate, we were met by Frank Sutton. Before you go in, he said, I owe you both an explanation. 
Adrian refuses, Doctor, to call you in professionally. But I got him to ask you around, using you, Johnson, as a sort of decoy for a drink. The important thing is that having attended him after his collapse, you should see him now and observe his present condition. He needs tackling at once. He has never told you yet about his delusions, though he suspects Johnson of having inferred their peculiar nature. Tonight, he has promised to make a clean breast of them, and I fancy that you'll find them important from the medical standpoint. We went in, and sitting in a half-circle round the fire, began our drinks over the usual small talk. Friend Sutton was, however, a believer in getting to grips with a job quickly, and broke in early with the request that Adrian would tell us all about his Benchiston business. Tell us everything, old man, right from the very beginning when your father and old Saxon held the stage. I'll try, responded Friend, not at all averse to becoming the centre of our interest, and I'll make it as short as I can. Our firm's name, you know, is Friend, Friend and Saxon. And that is because when my father turned the show into a limited liability company, he kept a third share for himself and reserved a second third for me against the day when I should have grown up and proved my business capacity, while he allowed his manager, old Saxon, to take up the remaining third share. Old Saxon's boy and myself were unfortunately of the same age, and wherever my father sent me, to Heathcote, Winchingham and Oxbridge, old Saxon must needs send Paul. He dogged my footsteps everywhere, and at both schools and later at the varsity he excelled me both in games and work. My parents took shame from my inferiority and perpetually abraded me with letting them down. As a result, I grew to hate Paul and detested him the more for a desire on his part to fraternise. Finally, we entered into the firm's business simultaneously. I, to me, my father's greatest disappointment, and Paul to be his right-hand man, and at old Saxon's death, his energetic partner. Paul also inherited money from an aunt, and my father, in appreciation of his work, allowed him to purchase the share in the business which he had earmarked for me. On my father's death, therefore, I had only the one-third share in the business which I inherited from him against Paul's two. Friend, Friend and Saxon had become in reality Saxon, Saxon, and friend. I was permanently number two to my life's enemy, and during every day and hour of our partnership, my hatred for him proliferated. It possessed my whole being. I don't very often go to church, but I had done so on the Sunday preceding my collapse in the train, and it was the parson's sermon that brought home to me the full significance of my hatred. He was preaching on sins of intention, and quoted that text about a man committing fornication in his heart if he looks upon a woman lasciviously. The same logic the parson pointed out applies to the other commandments. Many people might regard themselves as pretty safe against the breach of the sixth, but we must remember that anybody who allowed his imagination to dwell on how much nicer things would be if only so-and-so were out of the way had already committed murder in his heart. I at once realised this to be true. I was murdering Paul daily, and quite clearly it was my duty both to him and myself that I should cut adrift from our partnership. Nevertheless, I delayed doing it, fearing the explanation which Saxon would demand and the loss of employment in which it must land me. This delay added further fuel to my hate. You'll remember, Johnson, how in the train that day you joked about the possibility of the cold cure which I'd lent to Saxon proving as deadly as the dose that killed my dogs. 
That jest of yours brought me with a jerk bang up against the actuality that I had in passing the bottle to Saxon, thought how easy and pleasant it would have been to hand over some poisonous mixture, if any such had been to hand. I tried to keep my mind off this memory by reading the paper, but without success, and then endeavoured to concentrate on other thoughts. Johnson knows my fondness for railway history, and I had told him how an important railway project had ended ignominiously in a gasworks siding. I forced myself now to imagine what would have been the route of the abortive London, Middlehampton and East Coast Railway, and what might have been the livery of its rolling stock. While my thoughts were being directed along these lines, we rattled through Ponston Priory, and to my momentary surprise, I felt the train, instead of carrying straight on over the points, swing right-handed towards the siding. I say momentary surprise, because within a few seconds it seemed perfectly right and natural to me that we should be travelling eastwards. I noticed the monogram LM and ECR on the antimacassars opposite, and above them two pictures of Benchester's sea and one of Bellringer's cliff. The scenery through which we were passing was also familiar, and I knew that before reaching Benchester the train would stop at Latteridge Junction to pick up passengers. I also had a certain foreboding that among the passengers we should pick up would be Paul Saxon, and so it turned out. As the train glided in, I spotted him out of the corner of my eye, and surreptitiously watched him enter a compartment three doors off from mine. At Benjamin West, he got out, and I heard him tell the uniformed porter from Fotheringham Hotel to take up his suitcase. That gave me my cue. I journeyed on to the East Station and took up my quarters at the Porchester. Paul and I, therefore, had a good three miles between us and ample space in which to avoid each other. This, however, was not to be. Walking next day along the summit of Bellringer's Cliff, I suddenly heard a whistling of that filthy tune Lulu on the Lilo, followed by a loathsomely hearty, By Jove, how are we? Fancy meeting you up here. I say, what a magnificent view of the sea one gets. He stood at the edge of the cliff, gazing seaward. I took a hurried look to the right and the left. We were alone. Striking him from behind, on both shoulder blades, I caused him to overbalance and fall forward. I was alone. My heart thumped with the joy of quick decision and prompt execution. Glancing at my wristwatch, I saw that it was a quarter to three. I started singing and was just about to peer over the edge in order to see if Saxon's body had fallen on the rocks below or below tide level when a large hand grabbed me by the arm and swung me round so that I faced inshore. My aggressor was a man of over six feet and broad in proportion. I'll see you to the police station, he said. And mind you, no tricks. Give me your right hand. I suppose that I fainted, for everything seemed to go misty and black. And the next thing of which I became conscious was lying in bed here in this house. Now, you three persons listening to my story have doubtless relegated this Benchiston part of it to the realm of dreamland, and that was my intention also. In order to prevent any recurrence of the stimuli that led to the nightmare, I gave up travelling to London via Ponston and used the other line to King's Pancras. In doing so, I forgot that I had returned from Benchston not by train, but in a faint or swoon. And I soon learned to my horror that this process was reversible. During the past few weeks, 
I have revisited Benchiston many times in trance or swoon. I have stood my trial there for murder and heard sentence of death pronounced on me. The governor of Benchiston prison has told me that my execution takes place tomorrow morning at eight. Give me a brandy, Gilbert. Thank you, that's better. Now, I want all three of you to be here at that time tomorrow morning to protect me, and I'll tell you why. I have noticed that things which happen at Benchiston can simultaneously take place here, if in a different manner. For example, Saxon died from pneumonia at the same instant as I thrust him over Bellringer's cliff. The exact time of his death is one of the first things I ascertained after my return to work. Lister had been at the deathbed. I have no doubt that punctually tomorrow morning, as the clock strikes eight, whatever it is that corresponds to me in Benchiston will be hanged. Therefore, you must agree to be here with me at that hour. I can see that you think me mad, but if you'll do what I ask, I promise you that at five minutes past eight tomorrow you will find me sane and sensible beyond all doubt. Whatever it be at Benchiston that shares my identity and usurps my consciousness will have been killed by then, and myself set free. Do promise, therefore, to come without fail. Friend directed a beseeching look at each of us in turn, and each nodded his assent. On my way home, Jameson was for him unusually communicative. I shall have to get Hasterton onto this case. Friend may think that tomorrow morning will see the end of his delusions, but he's wrong. I know these symptoms, and there cannot be a sudden end to them. Nevertheless, there was. 6. The doctor called for me next morning, and at ten minutes to eight we walked across to Brenside. On entering the hall, I was surprised to see the hands of the large chiming clock registering 7.55. That clock's fast, I said to Franz Sutton as he came out of the drawing room, followed by his cousin to meet us. Oh, no, it can't be. Adrian's been on to the exchange twice this morning. That's Greenwich time, all right. For a man who, in his own apprehension, stood in danger of imminent death, Friend struck me as unexpectedly calm and collected. He bade us take chairs facing the clock, and we must have looked a strange group as we sat watching the dial. The tick of the pendulum acquired unusual sonority owing to our silence, a silence dictated for three of us by our consciousness of the fatuity of the whole proceeding. A click and a cluck, followed by a whirring of small wheels, heralded the chimes, and I saw Friend dig his fingers into the leathered arm of his chair. The interval between the chimes and the hour gong seemed interminable, but at last the eight strokes droned out, and, as we had foreseen, nothing would ever happened. And now you chaps must celebrate my release. Thanks ever so much for seeing me through. We can't very well have whiskey at this hour, though. Gilbert, tell Ada to bring coffee quickly while I dash upstairs and get a handkerchief. Both cousins had thus left the room when Jameson exclaimed suddenly, What's that? What's what? Listen! The morning breeze made them faint, but we heard unmistakably the chimes of Brensham Parish Church, and then the distant boom of the great hour bell. Simultaneously there came from almost above our heads a noise of rending, a cry, a crash, and nearer to us still, a dull, heavy thud. We rushed down the back passage where we ran into French Sutton as he hurried out from the pantry. In the wooden ceiling above us gaped a yard-square hole, and immediately below lay the ruin of a trap-door, the hinges torn from the supporting joist. 
It was Fred's fire escape. Over what was close beside it, the doctor now leaned, and having lifted one end, laid it gently back. Finish, he said. Broken neck. And then, looking on the broken door beside him, and up at the hole above, he added, Amateur carpentry and unseasoned wood, a fatal combination. And why, murmured Friend Sutton, surely have set that clock fast? He insisted on ringing it up for the time and doing it himself. Possibly, Dr. Jameson rose from examination, they may know the answers to those questions in Benchiston. Possibly. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? While I enjoy all the stories I read, that was one of my favourites. Episode 65, Branch Line to Benchiston. I think I like it because I've always been a fan of Evelyn Waugh and P.G. Woodhouse and that very uh, 1920s, 30s kind of humour. And I think this story, although it isn't particularly a comedy, has a lot of that kind of humour in it. So Branch Line to Benchiston or Benziston, as the place doesn't exist, I feel pretty free to pronounce it how I want. And it was easier to say Benjiston by Sir Andrew Caldicott. It was published in the collection Not Exactly Ghosts in 1947. So Sir Andrew Caldicott was in his 60s when he retired and had an illustrious career in the colonial service of the British Empire. He'd worked in Singapore, where there's a station named after him. He'd also been governor of uh, Hong Kong. And for many years, and they didn't want him, no, he's, that's the one he wasn't very long at, but he was so good, they didn't want him to leave. They actually petitioned the, the government to let him stay there, but he, he didn't. He went to uh, Ceylon, Sri Lanka, and was governor there throughout the Second World War. So he was, he, and he was, he was knighted. So he was a very um, established chap. He was born in England, in uh, Kent. His dad was a vicar, a clergyman. Spooky how this keeps turning up. And he only lived until he was 65. So he started writing. He had a lot of interests, golf, piano playing. And I say how it's, it's interesting that in the notes I say this, that a writer's interests come through in their writing. So clearly he knows something about piano playing. So writers clearly do put their interests in their stories. And Frank Cowper, who wrote uh, Christmas Eve on a Haunted Hulk, was instrumental in setting up a lot of yacht companies. Um, and touring by yachts, and that comes out. Hume Nisbet, who wrote The Old Portrait, was a painter, and so he knows about paintings. And Robert W. Chambers was also a painter, and in The Yellow Sign, the hero is a painter. So that's probably why I put my interests in. You have to guess what those are. If you read my, my stories, actually, you'll, you, the, the certain things keep popping up with regularity, which makes me laugh, but that's sort of like an in-joke. Anyway, back to this story, which I really liked. So Not Exactly Ghosts was the collection it was published in, and it isn't about a ghost as such. It's set up remarkably well, I think. So you know the story. So the first thing I really like about it is, I don't know if you're familiar with John Betjeman's work, and he did a film called Metroland. And Metroland was this English dream 
a particularly a southern English dream, the home counties dream, whereby people could live in the countryside. This this um, beautiful idea of the English village with the church and the spinster cycling to Evensong and the milkman collecting the bottles and cows chewing the cud and country characters in thatched cottages. You know, this is very much where traditionally English people want to be and still want to be, but this was offered to them via Metroland. And the growth of the railway system around London allowed huge swathes of the home counties, Hertfordshire and Berkshire and Kent and Surrey and um, all those other counties, Essex, I guess a bit, all those other counties, you could get to them by train, but particularly out towards Middlesex and Hertfordshire was Metroland and the west side of it. And you could live in a country village, so it was offered to you, but you could travel to London as well and work in the city. So this was the big dream of the middle classes. And of course, a lot of the pubs and things were done as, and houses were done in mock Tudor to pretend you were really going back to this authentic English village, although it was nothing of the sort, of course. So I think uh, if you're interested in that, which is wonderful, read some Betjeman. His poems are set in Joan Hunter Dunn and all that, set in Aldershot and all of these. And this is uh, when I was a younger man, I, I went out with a girl. I went out with a couple of girls who lived around there. So I spent a lot of my time in the, the counties, the home counties around London. And I have some nice memories of that. But there we are, uh, drifting off. So, yeah, Metroland, this is what it is. He does it really well. He does another... He, does, he sets the story up really well. He sets us up, he misdirects us, I think, with the whole business of the poisons and the herbs because it's sort of a misdirection because it is something to do with the, the payoff at the end. But, you know, we're led to believe that perhaps he does kill our man, Andrew, Adrian Friend, does kill Paul Saxon by poisoning him as he did his little doggies. But that is a misdirection, in fact. The, the, the payoff is, is stranger. The story twists is stranger than that. But Johnson, the narrator, is very arch and very wry. And his comments about a man saying adorable and his comments about the dogs and he's looking down his nose at the railway model. And he's, he's actually really funny, I thought. I, I, I actually laughed out loud a couple of times, not when I was reading it out loud, but when I was pre-reading it. So... There we are. But the real setup is beautifully done. We are, it's so well done. It was buried for me when I first read it. So there's a fire and poor Mrs. What's her name is, is burned to death. And the coroner says, these houses are a death trap. And we've already been set up that Adrian Friend just has no consistency and no carry through. So he, he has an idea and he does it half cocked. And this is the trapdoor. And this bizarre idea of how he, he would create a, a fire escape like they had at prep school with a trapdoor and a rope that if there was a fire, they'd swarm down hand over hand. It's just ludicrous. And that is very Evelyn War to me or P.G. Woodhouse almost, you know. And, uh, and it is that world of theirs, of the middle classes, although Adrian Friend possibly slightly lower in class than Jeeves and Worcester or uh, Bright said revisitated, revisitated, revisited. So anyway, fun. But, and he and Caldicott had worked with coroners and with the legal system. So when he says about the coroner's recommendation being largely ignored, it has two jokes in it. One is his own joke about, yeah, that's actually what happens in real life. And Yet you, reader, are going to ignore this. He even flags it up and says, the second reason why he's telling this about will become evident later on, because that is how he dies. Anyway, I thought, I thought it was really, really well done. 
he, he buries the, the true clue and misdirects us with false ones. He also sets up the whole business of the railway about this dream branch line that never, ever happened. And so there's a parallel because the crime that Adrian Friend gets hung for by himself, actually, only exists in a dream, as does the whole place. The, the branch line only existed in imagination. And so the crime, and it, it, he hangs it on Jesus's famous saying that if you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you've already committed fornication. So the issue being, which I always thought was pretty, pretty much of a harsh judgment, actually, but the, the issue being that if you imagine a sin, you are guilty of a sin. And so, and you are tried in your imagination for that imaginary sin. I just think it's a really fantastic story on so many levels. And I like a bit of dream stuff. I've always been a big uh, David Lynch fan, for example. And uh, I like a bit of dream, dream work. So there we are. No, it was brilliant. He sets up the motive for the murder. He sets up the motive, you know, why he should hate him. It's all set up like a detective story, but then he subverts it. It's really good. And other, other comments that made me laugh, his comments about Lulu on the Lilo and filthy jazz and the nurse's comment. You know, he already has the coroner's comment about people ignoring him. And then he has the nurse's comment that the best patients are ones that sleep, ask no questions and do what they're told. And that made me laugh at that. And then, of course, Jameson, the doctor, who says he has to get Hasterton onto the case, and presumably Hasterton is a psychiatrist. And uh, I know a lot of psychiatrists. I've never, I met, I met a lot, I've liked a lot. Never met one that was totally, totally sane. But there we are. They, if any are uh, listening to this, they may be going, what, me? But remember, you don't work in a paint factory without getting splashed with paint. So fantastic. What a story. I really liked it. Amateur carpentry and unseasoned wood, a fatal combination. Yeah, great. Honestly, Jeeves and Worcester meets, what do you call it? Speculative fiction. There was also an echo of um, some of Robert Aikman. I keep, I haven't actually formally read out any Robert Aikman. I did record one episode that went terribly wrong and I lost the recording. But uh, Aikman has, he, is it uh, Ringing the Changes where they go to this obscure English seaside village, which is far more sinister and unsettling than Bencheston. But uh, again, similar idea, just echoed. So other crack, as we say, not crack cocaine, but as we use the word crack for conversation, to be honest. So uh, yeah, I'm really busy at the moment. I've been writing on Medium and I'd written a lot on Medium and then certainly I wrote one on um, time slips because I'm interested in all that paranormal stuff, as you may gather. And it went poof, viral. And I thought, oh my God, I can earn this much money from this little work. It is pretty hit and miss whether you're lucky getting it curate, curated, curated and put in the right publications. Anyway, have a look at it. It just went boom. So I think, oh, you know, I need to put my attention to that. But this all, of course, and I want to do some Facebook live readings. I was thinking of doing a ghost story like I do now, but say every Wednesday is a video just as an alternative to see if I can again, keep getting the interest. You know, I've had two more Alex Boast than if I mentioned Alex last time, but I've had, I've had, lot, I've had a few more Patreons. I think I've got um, 16 now. And, uh, you know, that's fantastic, but it is this that keeps the podcast going their their support and I want to give value to them and so as I don't have a ton of I don't have infinite time 
I was thinking of maybe reducing the podcast to once a fortnight, which is once every two weeks, in case you didn't know, 14 nights, and doing a patrons-only one in the intervening weeks. So I'm in two minds about that. I want to reward the patrons. I want to build that. I want to make it worthwhile for people to support me uh, in order to enable me to do what I want, which is to do this and retire. You may have seen in the videos, I'm getting a bit long in the tooth. So that's the plan. So I don't know whether I'm going to do that, but I'm thinking about it. The next story I want to do, I think it's time for a bit more Poe. And um, I'm, I'm a big fan of the fall of the House of Usher. I'm, do, I'm writing a lot of gothic stuff at the moment, which I'm enjoying. And of course, uh, the fall of the House of Usher is pretty gothic. So I'm, I'm almost certain I'm going to do that next week. So there we are. Yep. Thank you. Thank you, Patreons. If any of you wish to show your appreciation and support the podcast going, then please sign up. You can get it for a dollar a month and you get access to a load of other stuff, exclusive stuff that's only available for the patrons. So I think it's a hope that it's a good value proposition. Um, if you want to start your own podcast, I've got a link in the show notes. Go with Captivate, they're really good. I also benefit from the affiliate link and also the affiliate link I've got. If you go and have a look, click on my any of my books, can bring ghost stories, London ghost, London horror stories, Christmas ghost stories. If you click on any of those and some of the little short reads I've put out, the House of Bones, House in the Forest. You see, I'm forgetting my own my own stories. I'm going to do Gothica as a short read because that is I'm really enjoying it. I, I was I was despairing of it at one point, but I'm again. It's a little bit tongue in cheek. You can't really do a full on Gothic story without any irony, I don't think. But anyway, yeah, the point being, if you go on the link in the show notes to my book, London Horror Stories, you don't even have to buy the book, though, if you did, or read it on KDP, that is utterly fantastic. But um, anything you buy, including a car or some Hershey bars, I believe people buy those, not me. But that's another story, which I will maybe explain one day, but maybe not then I get a little tiny, 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 tiny amount. Now, funnily enough, the Medium story had one of those links in and it had 28,000 views, something like 9,000 likes and five clicks. Anyway, that's it for this week. I will speak to you next week. The Fall of the House of Usher.